This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey, it's the guy on your street with the giant dog. And no, he does not put a saddle on it. Don't ask him. Allie Ward, back with a little bit of an offbeat episode for you. It's on a topic you probably thought we would never cover. Detroit. An American industrial city. Allie, why isn't this an episode about prairie dogs or something? Because this is ologies. We can cover whatever we want, as long as it's an ology. So this week is March 13th, or 313, which is the area code for Detroit, and thus... It is the officially celebrated 313 Day in Detroit. And I've been to Detroit countless times. I shoot the TV shows Innovation Nation and Did I Mention Invention at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation. That's in Dearborn. And our family grew up listening to my mom's Motown records from the jukebox. I have thrown the first pitch at a Tigers baseball game, and I did a very bad job. I practiced for weeks, and I absolutely embarrassed everyone who's ever met me. But I have seen Detroit in all seasons over so many decades, and the history and its present really fascinates me, but I have never lived there. So this episode is a standalone episode, but it's also kind of like a context bomb for an episode that's coming up in two weeks. And I'm not going to tell you what, no spoilers. But in the 2018 mythology episode, we talked about this guest. I take telling stories super serious. I know. I love it. <laughs> I do. And I, I think it's a, a big responsibility. I feel like it's a calling. I feel like Detroit in the fall of last year, mm-hmm. just appointed first city in the U.S., appointed a chief storyteller. What? And it's this guy in Detroit, an African-American guy that's a brilliant journalist and writer and storyteller. And he has taken on the task of trying to change the narrative narrative about Detroit. Oh my God. I love this so much. Side note, my sister lived in Detroit for a decade. So I've always had a soft spot for Detroit history. And the city's chief storyteller is Aaron Foley. He's an author in his thirties and he hates the word gritty. Like your sister-in-law hates moist. He says, quote, by forever branding Detroiters as gritty, we're put in the position of being pitied over bleeding hearts all over the place. Suddenly feel the plight of Detroiters which is a good point. Aaron Foley wrote a book called How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass, which, let's be honest, was written for chicks like me because I'm like, 
a jackass, and I have dreams of living in an old Detroit Victorian. So, a point taken. Also, this book bears this gold and green cover script that it takes you like half a second before you realize it's an homage to Werner Soda. This book is very much on my reading list now, so thank you, Erin. If there's an ology about Detroit, can we please talk about it? And that was five years ago. So pandemic started, time went by, and I finally caught up with a storyteller who is now a senior editor at PBS NewsHour and a John S. Knight journalism fellow, also a novelist of the excellent book Boys Come First, which is somehow hilarious and heartbreaking and so human and so good. And if you're not into fiction, you can enjoy this guest's other books, such as The Detroit Neighborhood Guidebook, And again, how to live in Detroit without being a jackass. He also knows how not to live in Detroit without being a jackass. And we'll get to his recent relocation in the episode. But first, thank you patrons at patreon.com slash ologies for supporting the show and sending in great questions for this. Thank you to everyone who passes episodes along to others and everyone subscribed and rating and all the people who leave reviews. I read them all, including this week one from MS Passel, who wrote that they appreciate the show's enthusiasm for all this cool stuff and how we interview experts and truly real and fascinating people and not random celebrities. Thank you very much from this random not celebrity. And real quick, is Detroitology a real word? It is. So Detroit, first off, it's a French word for straight, as in the Strait of Lake Erie. Kind of boring etymology there. But one town historian by the name of Anna Cohn, who runs a justice-oriented nonprofit in the city, coined the term while getting her degree in Detroit sociology years back. So the word exists and Detroitologists exist. So get ready for my long-term ology dreams to come true. As this charming and affable and celebrated public figure teaches us so much about Midwestern invention, urban transportation systems, giant slides, coney dogs, gentrification, abandoned houses, rebranded neighborhoods, square pizza, house prices, the font of the D, the bell of the Isles, the historical Motown, and the new crop of rappers, and of course, the giant slide. With journalist, novelist, Detroit's first ever official storyteller, and thus Detroitologist, Aaron Foley. Aaron Foley, pronouns he, him. I have known about you for years. <laughs> I think I DM'd you like two or three years yes. ago. <laughs> I think it was before the pandemic because you've been on my list for so long to talk to. And I always thought I would catch up with you in Detroit. Mm-hmm. We're not in Detroit. We're in Brooklyn. <laughs> we are in Bed-Stuy. Bed-Stuy, do or die. <laughs> How long have you lived here? Just a little over two years. And Will you forever be Detroit storyteller? Or was that a gig that was like, it ended at a certain time? So the job title was Detroit storyteller. I held that for two and a half years, but... I'll always be a Detroit storyteller. Like, mm-hmm. I can live on Mars and we'll talk to <laughs> the Martians about Detroit. Was the pandemic part of the reason why you moved? Partly, yeah. I had a job opportunity here and it became clear a lot of things would be remote. And so I had a very narrow window where, like, my family was doing well and things kind of lined up for me personally to be like, mm, let me see what. A life is like outside of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Is this the first time you've lived outside of Michigan? Unless you count like an internship in, in college, yes. 
Really? Yeah. How has it been the last two years? It's been weird just because I know Detroit like the back of my hand. I don't need maps or anything. I know like my favorite restaurants and things like that. Here in New York, it takes a while to kind of get into the groove. And then there's so much to discover. And I do kind of feel like not at home sometimes because I don't know like, you know, everything. So there's no place like home. And by home, I mean Detroit. How does someone become a city storyteller? I, to this day, still don't even know how I ended up with that job. Um, It was definitely something that was needed because Detroit has always sort of struggled with outside perception. And it really needed a hometown advocate. And fortunately, there are several now. I'm not the only one. But it needs kind of that hometown voice to convey to the outsiders, like, hey, this is what we're about. This is what we have to offer. Mm -hmm. What part of Detroit are you from? I grew up on the west side. That's what I claim. I spent some time on the east side as a kid near Lafayette Park, but I matriculated and came of age in Russell Woods. And that's Dexter and Davison for people who are looking at a map. I was living in... Rivertown, uh, Gold Coast, Mm -hmm. the area along uh, East Jefferson near Belle Isle. So Belle Isle, side note, is a 982-acre park on an island in the Detroit River. And it's not always been called Belle Isle. It was also once called Hog Island because it was overrun with hogs. But now it's beautiful. And it's been a gathering place for locals for years, from picnics to car clubs and cruising. They've had concerts. They've had love-ins there, military training, and also the start of a brutal race riot in 1943 that killed over 30 people. So Detroit's history is a very American one, for good and bad. And as a Detroit storyteller, what were those first meetings like? Like, what was the job interview? Did you see a posting and you were like... <laughs> no, I have to credit now former chief of staff, Alexis Wiley. She went off to start her own strategy agency. But we literally had drinks in, at Queen's Bar. Uh, mm-hmm. We had beers. She and the director of communications at the time got me drunk. <laughs> and said, we want you to, to help tell stories about the city. And I was very skeptical, as a lot of people were, because I was just like... I don't want to do PR for the city. I don't want to do PR for the mayor's office. There's a machine, a tank that does PR for the mayor. And they were like, no, 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 no. You'll be working in media services, which is the division that controls like the public access channels and making, you know, uh, flyers and things like that for the city. So there was some money allocated for education programs and Detroit wanted to invest that into video and digital content, even live events, gatherings. And essentially, outreach that didn't feel like a pamphlet that Cheryl from HR made, but represented the authentic voice of Detroit. Aaron's role was dual. We kind of do two things. We explain some of the goings-on at city government in a way that people could relate to it. I think sometimes any city, you know, they send out the press release and it can be gobbledygook sometimes Mm -hmm. and it just kind of gets lost. But if you put like a face on it, per se, that helps people relate to it more. But also just filling in a gap that uh, that gap is starting to be filled in. I like to take credit for that. (laughs) At the time, there wasn't a lot of like granular neighborhood coverage of the young entrepreneurs, especially the young entrepreneurs of color, opening businesses and things like that. A lot of spotlight on some of the minority communities that weren't. Uh, Detroit is majority black, but there's also a strong Bangladeshi population, Latinx, queer populations. I wanted to talk about queer people outside of Pride Month in June. And, you know, you had to go to like those 
community papers to find that coverage. But I was like, I feel like it should be a little bit more mainstream and get a little bit of a larger platform. So we did a lot of that. I sent a camera crew to a gay bar that burned down last year, unfortunately, late at night, off hours, and they filmed a voguing competition. And we aired that voguing competition on city cable. And there had been nothing like that on city cable. Voguing has really evolved. And I mean really evolved in the sense of the influence that it now holds and really being recognized as a true art form. City Cable is all like, you know, here's what's going on at the rec center today. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and then like, you know, three o'clock comes and it's just like, boom, 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 <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And that's what we were going for. It was just trying to do, again, like do something that a city government public access outlet had not done, but also kind of look for some of these gaps that were in Detroit media coverage. And it sounds like, as you mentioned, the public perception versus the local perception of, of someone who actually lives there What gulf did you need to bridge? So I started that job in 2017, and still there were people kind of coming to Detroit, like, you know, where are the drugs? They were looking for one thing. They were looking for Eminem. They were looking for the drugs. They were looking for the ruined porn Mm. and still kind of looking for that exploitative of, of people of color living in poverty and things like that. This is not to deny that poverty does exist in Detroit for many reasons, is systemic. But 2017 and in the years around that, we're still kind of touch and go in, in terms of like, look at all these impoverished people of color and look at all the young white entrepreneurs on, on a mission to save them. And all the while, there's a new generation of, again, young entrepreneurs of color. Aaron notes the career of CEO Melissa Butler, who is the founder of the cosmetics company, The Lip Bar. And To be fair, on thelipbar.com, her role is defined as a CEO and boss, B-A-W-S-E, boss. And her story is another Detroit triumph. But she was on Shark Tank and got famously got turned down from Shark Tank and then got a deal with Target. She just got a whole round of like $7 million or something like that from some investors. Around that time, 2017, is when people like her and, and so many others were on the come up and people just weren't talking about them. You know, one of my favorite stories was uh, Kenzie Clark. She wrote a story about a gay couple that moved to Detroit from the suburbs and they moved to Rosedale Park. And she got a letter, uh, uh, not a letter, but, you know, an email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Romanticize it but a little <laughs> bit. But uh, she got an email from a lesbian couple who said, we read this story on the city's website about this new queer community sort of slowly coming together here. And because of that story, we decided to buy a house in Detroit. And that's one of my favorite, quote unquote, success stories mm-hmm. was that, again, kind of showing some of these people who aren't famous. It, it would either be those entrepreneurs on the come up or or these kind of ordinary people doing great things and inspiring people to invest in the city, to move to the city. I'm still proud of that. And Aaron's excellent novel, Boys Come First, is a window into what it's like to live in Detroit and to see the city change kind of block by block. And the three main characters are all queer Black men. And one is a real estate agent. Another is a teacher at a charter school. And then the third has just moved back in with his mom in Detroit after living in New York. So definitely add it to your reading list. We linked it in the show notes if you want to buy it. And if you absolutely do not read... That's okay. Aaron just announced that he's optioned the rights for his book for development into a series at Prime Video with WandaVision writer Chuck Hayward attached as a showrunner. And Aaron tweeted, thanks to everyone for believing in this very Black, very gay, very Detroit story. Let's make history. So getting back to that very Detroit story. 
You mentioned the term ruin porn, which I haven't heard of, but I remember there being a tumbler of like crumbling Victorian houses, yeah, right? There are probably several. Yeah. <laughs> there were there were several tumblers and blogs and flickers and all that sort of thing. Ruin porn is literally like, you know, you take gorgeous, you know, now we have portrait on the iPhone. But imagine ten years ago before portrait mode, just taking that style of photo of a crumbling house, a crumbling building, an empty lot, a vacant auto plan or something like that, and just literally putting up there for people to gawk at and be like, oh my gosh, this city is looks like a meteor hit it. Mm-hmm. And that was very pervasive. It sort of came in line with the rise of like humans of New York and, and stuff like that, kind of like these ordinary amateur photographers kind of going around. And all of that sort of came around. And Detroit really did get that reputation of being the room important capital of the world. And it was funny to us Detroiters because we were like, some of these buildings, like the Michigan Central Depot, the big train station, that's been empty all our lives. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was kind of that uh, flippant, like, you guys are just now noticing it. But also the frustration because there are full neighborhoods, there are vibrant neighborhoods that never stopped existing, even during the hardest times. And there are always black entrepreneurs, brown entrepreneurs, Latino, South Asian, and so on and so forth. Even going back to someone like the Polish and Irish and German, uh, great-great-grandchildren of the immigrants that first came to Detroit that never left the city, you know, keeping the seats warm. So at its peak in the 1950s, Detroit had over a million residents, but that began to decline steadily as a lot of automotive jobs moved to plants overseas and in Mexico and the 2008 financial crisis hit. And then Detroit-based General Motors filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And though there was a $51 billion government bailout, and that saved 1.2 million jobs, Detroit's population has never really recovered. And right now, there are about 630,000 residents, and many neighborhoods and businesses are thriving, but the instant association of Detroit is of plywood windows on these crumbling homes and vacant factories and the Michigan Central Station, which waved goodbye to its final train in 1988 and then sat vacant for 30 years and was highly photographed in its decaying and flooded state. But it was bought by Ford in 2018. They have plans to reopen it later this year. But Detroit is often thought of in the past tense as a victim, while its present and its future get less attention. It would always get overlooked in favor of like pictures of the train station or the Packard plan or or something like that. And that became the image of Detroit. And people are just like, do people actually live in Detroit or yeah. is it just like a ghost town? And it's like, you know, I got like hundreds of thousands of, yeah. of people being like, yeah, you know, I go to work here, I send my kids to school, all that type of stuff. So. Yeah. And when it comes to the history of Detroit, the arc of it, if someone isn't familiar with Detroit, I know that it's got such a long and rich history and there are so many great books and even novels and so many resources out there. But when you kind of describe a little bit of Detroit's history, where do you start? I like to start in two different places. You can start with 1701, I believe, you know, when the French settlers first came and they were fur trapping and things like that and started the ribbon farms and displaced several of the indigenous uh, population that we don't talk about that as much. And also some of those uh, early French settlers enslaved both indigenous people and black people. That gets lost in the conversation a lot. You could start there. Uh, fur trapping is what the city was kind of built on. And to this day, we Detroiters love to wear furs, you know, Detroit furs. 
So yes, before Detroit became a hub of innovation and industry in the 1920s, it was a French settlement. And I'm just going to read the sentence straight from the mouth of Wikipedia because it's just wow. The first recorded mention of the site was in the 1670s when French missionaries found a stone idol venerated by the Native Americans there and destroyed it with an axe. So yes, the French may have named Detroit after the Strait of the Lake, but they did not discover the region. So the indigenous nations, including the Potawatomi, the Huron, Ottawa, and the Haudenosaunee, which are erroneously called the Iroquois by the French, they had all inhabited what's now the Detroit metro area. But before them, up to 11,000 years ago, were other humans, some known as mound builders who constructed these giant kind of conical pyramidy mounds to bury their dead and defend the living. And the largest of these mounds was a great mound off of the River Rouge, which according to a historical society site was 200 feet long and 20 feet tall. And when it was inevitably destroyed to make streets and lots, all sorts of chipped stone weaponry and axes and pottery and human bones were discovered. So that area is now the Delray neighborhood of Detroit. And I went down a hole and I cross-checked with some historical maps and Google Street View. And it appears that on the site of the Great Mound, there is now a carpentry studio that builds theater sets. And I don't know if the real estate agent was like, heads up, this site is an indigenous burial ground that was tragically desecrated by colonists. But on the upside, plenty of parking. But that's one history of Detroit. You can start there. I like to kind of start with like the Great Migration. Detroit has a long intertwined history with just Black history in, in America, period. Whether it's sort of that early enslavement of Black people uh, that doesn't get often talked about because Michigan is in the North. Detroit, especially being part of the Underground Railroad and, and being the last stop before you go over to Canada or unless you wanted to settle in Detroit. But the Great Migration of Black Southern Americans coming up South to places in the Midwest like St. Louis and Chicago and Cleveland and places like those and Detroit literally bringing like a, at least a million uh, black people out of Alabama, Mississippi, primarily Alabama. That's where my people are from. I like to start there because you can trace so much stuff like the creation of Motown, mm-hmm. Joe Lewis, all of, you know, like post-emancipation black history in a lot of black United States history. Joe Lewis, side note, was born in Alabama to sharecropper parents and relocated to Detroit in 1912. And he was also the world heavyweight boxing champion for over a decade in the 1930s and 1940s. And then he just bounced and served in the Army's Special Services Division in World War II. And according to the Detroit Historical Society, Joe Lewis, quote, forced America to re-examine its segregationist policies and attitudes. His fists destroyed the myth of white supremacy and his quiet dignity and exemplary patriotism opened the door for the wave of Black athletes who followed. So his legacy was lasting, but he shares a history of relocation north with so many Americans. And for more on this, you can see the genealogy episode about tracing the histories of many Black families. And the guest on that is 1619 20 Africans author Stephen Hanks, who is, yes, distantly related to Tom Hanks. Now, on the topic of heading north. Motown especially, 
uh, has its roots in the Great Migration. So I like to remind people that I think Detroit is sometimes overlooked as a mecca of Black culture. We're sitting here in Bed-Stuy, which is certainly like, you know, Biggie and Jay-Z and, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And then you go uptown to Harlem. And then we talk about like Atlanta and D.C., Chocolate City and, and things like that. And somehow recently, in the last couple of years, Detroit gets lost in that conversation. And yeah. I'm like... Uh, Motown, (laughs) Uh, Quiet Storm Radio. Slow and sexy. It's the Quiet Storm on JLB. Uh, Anita Baker. Uh, even the current new crop of rappers like uh, Babytron and Babyface Ray and Peasy and Sada Baby T Grizzly, all of the rappers around the country are looking at the scene here in Michigan and in Detroit and Flint as the next thing beyond your, you know, running the mill Eminem and Big Sean. So all credit to them as well. But there's just so much innovation in Detroit that comes out of uh, black intelligence, let's say. Mm-hmm. Just on the topic of intelligence, I want to confess here that I was way too old before it clicked that Motown came from Motor City. But I mean, I was also the kid that thought that U-Haul was a Hawaiian brand pronounced Uahu. So, and do you feel like Detroit's lasting impact on America is just indelible from everything from Motown to mm-hmm. art to Car culture, to cars, yeah, to everything. What is some of the the history there and the infrastructure that had to be put in place to keep such a big, huge industrial city running that was also so vibrant artistically and is? It's, I mean, the the freeways and and the big roads and whatnot are kind of a blessing and a curse. On one hand, the freeways opened up new opportunities for the working class and whatnot to go like buy their like American dream house in the suburbs or even just get from point A to point B across the city and house all of these people, whether they were the black people coming up from the South or the many immigrants that have come from Albania and Ukraine, uh, Mexico, so on and so forth. Uh, Lebanon, of course. <laughs> Cannot yeah. forget Lebanon. Uh, the entire city of Dearborn will. <laughs> <laughs> Dearborn, side note, is just outside of Detroit, and it's one of the largest Arab American communities in the whole country, with some recent surveys clocking in at about half the population is of Arab descent due to this large influx of automobile workers in the 1920s. However, in all that time, never had an Arab mayor. Well, until now. So in 2021, the Dearborn born and raised son of Lebanese immigrants, Abdullah Hamoud, was elected the first Arab or Muslim mayor of Dearborn. And after his victory, he gave a really inspirational address and said, never shy away from who you are. Be proud of your name. Be comfortable in your identity because it'll take you places if you work hard, you're passionate, and you inspire people, which he is already doing. And one also does not need to be an ologist to know that Dearborn has some absolutely excellent falafel. But at the same time, you know, freeways opened up an addiction to sprawl, uh, suburban sprawl, of course. We're having a conversation now about urban renewal and how I-375 in particular destroyed a black business district, Paradise Valley, which had Paradise Valley not been destroyed in the 40s and 50s and 60s, it would be on par with, let's say, a Bourbon Street in New Orleans in terms of it was at its time called the Million Dollar Black District. All of this vast infrastructure did 
it kind of expand, expand, expand. And as like a balloon, the bigger it gets, the more tense it gets. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so now we're seeing the after effects in terms of like that balloon is certainly burst. You know, Detroit is 138 plus square miles, originally housing 2 million people. Now is housing roughly around 650,000. And so now we're dealing with all these problems like, okay, what are we going to do with all these abandoned houses, these vacant lots and things like that? There are people steadily moving to Detroit. You might have seen Mayor Duggan challenging the census and saying, you know, the census was an undercount, but we have all these receipts that that say otherwise. We're going to wait and see what happens with that, but not enough to fill in all of the vacant space. So I don't know if there's any smarter urbanist out there that can kind of figure out what the next step is. Okay, I'm not going to spoil the surprise of the follow-up episode to this, but let's just say... I ask a guy about stuff that he's found in abandoned houses. While there are certainly some things to celebrate about Detroit, there's still a long way to go before we can call it a comeback. He's been here for years. Yeah, I want to get back to that too about housing, but I'm wondering how much did automotive culture and industry, did that fuck up the subway system? Like, I live in LA, so (laughs) I'm like, I live in a place where most people in LA are not as aware of public transportation as, you know, in San Francisco or here. You know, living in New York, I gotta say, I gotta say, <laughs> I love the subways. I love the A train getting up to Harlem in, you know, 40 minutes. And yeah, there is definitely a strong argument to be made that the residency's dependence on the automobile, you know, forced upon the city because the automotive industry was the biggest employer. It's like you make what you eat or whatever, or you eat what you make, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I was literally just thinking about this, about like, why do I, I own a car in here in New York. And that goes back to my mentality of like, when I was a teenager, it was embarrassing to catch the bus. Like, <laughs> like you caught the bus up to a certain point. Like once you turn 15 or 16 and you didn't have a car, like that status symbol, that conspicuous consumption, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's ingrained in a lot of Detroiters because it's just like we build these cars, right? Like we have to have the nicest thing out or at least, you know, get our AXZ plan, that's Ford lingo, to get <laughs> to get a discount on, on something, right? And yeah, I mean, it's very materialistic, but it did kind of create this mentality of like the public transportation is inferior. And I think that's why there hasn't been a lot of investments made into it. But they're trying to service this very large city with the bare minimum of new equipment and and, and stuff like that. Add on top of that, that Metro Detroit has, what, three uh, different public transit systems not working really in sync as they could. So if you live in the city, you would have to catch the DDOT up to a certain point. That's Detroit Department of Transportation to the smart bus, the suburban mobility, something, something rapid transit that only runs in the suburbs. So a, you know, a 30 minute trip from, let's say, downtown Detroit to, I don't know, Royal Oak or something like that would be like an hour on the bus. Whereas like, you know, in New York, you have all of these systems working together in the way that the systems in Metro Detroit don't. And every time it comes up to a vote to kind of integrate all these systems, that old eight mile divide Mm -hmm. between for those who don't know the movie eight mile yes but uh (laughs) the city suburban divide the city of detroit lies below eight mile road and then the suburbs which have historically been mostly white are north and there's a lot of racism embedded in that and so when it comes to integrating the transit systems there's a fear there's always been this persistent fear of like oh the black people in detroit are going to like cheap 
Aspen, uh, our surroundings here in Royal Oak and Madison Heights and all these types of places. So we're going to make it as difficult as possible for you to come here. Even with cars, you know, it's no secret that black motorists are pulled over at a much higher rate in the suburbs uh, than they are in the city. I'm thinking specifically all my Detroiters are going to get this one. 94 and Telegraph, that underpass there, there's always somebody waiting there. Everybody hates it. Or going down 94 in Allen Park, there's always that one officer waiting on the on the exchange there, like, you know. I could go on all day yeah. that, but yeah. just how people get around and how they get to their jobs and make their livelihood and that impacts everyday life. So I'm, I can only imagine how frustrating that is. I know as someone who lives in a giant sprawl that was shaped by automobiles, it really does change the architecture of the city. But you were mentioning houses and population and stuff. And I'm so curious how Detroit, how it's looked at in terms of housing markets if there's bidding wars in so many cities mm-hmm. and it's so hard to find a place, it's so hard for, I mean, first time home buyers, millennials and Gen Z have been absolutely just fucked over so hard. Oh, yeah. Is there any kind of like bittersweet mentality about any kind of revitalization that would also seem like just mass gentrification mm-hmm. of the place? I would say, uh, now I'm not like actively in the housing market, you know, uh, preemptive right there. But I follow a guy, Otis, who has tweets all the time about like, you know, wanting to buy a house in the neighborhood he grew up in, and which is a common story in Detroit, or just trying to buy a house in some of like the name neighborhoods, like a Rosedale Park or a Grandmont or something like that. And they always end up in a bidding war. They always end up in a bidding war. I've seen houses in neighborhoods in Detroit, including the one I grew up in, at pricing these houses at like, I'm like, are you serious? Like 300000 to live off Dexter? Like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> See, for example, 2639 Monterey Street in Detroit. It's between Dexter and Linwood. Listing price, two hundred and eighty k. Six bedroom, four bath, new appliances, new everything. And if you're like Aaron, Allie, that's a ridiculous deal for a six-bedroom house. Just please consider that it previously sold in August of 2020 for $1,000. A 2,200-square-foot home, $1,000. How does this happen? Well, stay tuned for a future episode on that. I'm just going to tell you, it's called Domecology. It's going to be out March 21st. It's about abandoned properties. Anyway, according to Realtor.com, as of 2023, the median listing price for a home in Detroit, you ready for this? $80,000. How about Atlanta? Atlanta is five times that, $400,000. New York median price for real estate there, $745,000. LA is more than that, which shocked me. $1.1 million is the median listing price for LA. But in my dear birthplace of San Francisco, $1.3 million. And to be fair, the Dexter-Linwood neighborhood of Detroit did have some listings that were less than a used car. For example, the 10-bedroom, 10-bedroom, 3.5-bath brick mansion located at 2470 West Buena Vista Street, 3,900 square feet. Think about that. Guess how much it cost. 3,900 square feet, 10 bedrooms. Guess the number. Okay, it's lower than that. It's lower. It's $5,000. $5,000. I have seen some houses in some neighborhoods where it's just like, I don't, I personally do not put down the neighborhood, but like to be real, I'm just like, 
there's there's nothing there's it's not a walkable neighborhood you're kind of banking off of the potential that something's going to happen here which does lead to gentrification right because mm-hmm. some people are going to see that expensive price and be like oh something must be happening here and you know you get one person to buy into it and then you get like their friends or, or their peers to buy into it and then boom you've got something like what's going on in uh, west village right now so west village is so called because it's just west of this historically ritzy area named indian village and west village has homes in the style of queen anne and tudor and georgian and mediterranean and colonial revival. And this area has been called quaint and day trip worthy and a little retail and residential oasis for young professionals. And I just, I've never been there, but I feel like it would be easy to spend $7 on an iced matcha. I was staying in an Airbnb in West Village last time I stayed in Detroit. And part of me is just like, "Mm, I can see why someone would pay the premium to live here. But at the same time, I remember West Village like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when some of these townhouses were like boarded up and stuff like that. And, you know, it didn't have that prestige as as Indian Village had. There weren't all these like nice new restaurants, but it was still like a very affordable place to live. It was safe. People looked out for each other. Same with Island View, the neighborhood to the west of West Village. That's a neighborhood with a lot of like pristine, older, like Victorian, Victorian types. I'm not, I'm I'm probably getting the architecture name wrong. Nope, he's right. Beautiful turn of the century turrets and arches and bay windows and porches. But having gone to school over there for elementary school, I knew some kids that lived over there. Now that spot is turning into what we're seeing here in Bedside, where it's just like, hmm, where are y'all from? Like, <laughs> I, I haven't seen you here. I haven't seen your kind here before. <laughs> are you rich? And now you're starting to see houses go for like in the high six figures in those neighborhoods. I remember like, you know, nothing hit six figures. I see more houses going for a million or being listed at a million when even just five years ago, it was unheard of to list anything in Detroit for a million. Now there are multiple, Mm -hmm. you know, showing up on like Christie's and Sotheby's. I'm Mm -hmm. like, what? (laughs) Do you think that's good for Detroit or is it like for Detroit? I am not an economist in, in terms of like, will this tide lift all the boats, right? I just look at the practicality. Like, if I'm paying a million dollars to live in Indian Village, I'm only going to be walking to other houses in Indian Village. <laughs> I'm like, what? What is what is the bang for your buck here? I remember there was like a, I, I tweeted about this, like, there was something for an absurd amount of money in Midtown, uh, which is the hotspot for all of these conversations around gentrification and whatnot. And in the real estate listing, it was like in close proximity to Bronx Bar. And I was like, Bronx Bar? Like the the Wayne State College dive is why I'm going to pay six figures to, to live yeah. here <laughs> so I can get Bloody Marys yeah. every weekend? That's 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 the call here. Just P.S. Midtown is a place that was once called Cass Corridor, and it was known for being a pretty rough part of town, but it's less rough and it's more expensive now. And it's changed its name to Midtown. But locals are like, yeah, it's Cass Corridor. And I learned that from Aaron's book, which is called Boys Come First, and it's linked for purchase in the show notes. And it will teach you a lot about Detroit. I wonder if I'm um, also in the pandemic, if working from home has changed where people are moving, if they're say from, if they're from Michigan and they're, you know, they have, their parents are still there and grandparents and childcare. It's like, well, if I can work from an extra bedroom that I couldn't afford in San Francisco, then 
why not move to Detroit? I've seen that happen where, um, so my grandparents live, speaking of Indian Village, my grandparents live there. uh, They sold their house a couple of years ago and huge house. And it's got this like pedigree. It it belonged to Edsel Ford's sister-in-law. And there were only three residents before they bought it. And the person who bought their house was the startup guy from San Francisco. Now my grandparents had this house like decorated. Like it was a home full of furniture and stuff like that. This guy and his now (laughs) ex-wife or ex-fiance moved from like a studio in in San Francisco, but they had all this startup money, right? Mm-hmm. And moved into what was my grandfather's house and only had like a studio apartment's worth yeah. full of <laughs> furniture. And it was like all in the living room of <laughs> that. And so I visited the house. They My grandparents left the dining room table because it's one of those like big long ones that you can't like take out, right? Yeah. And But the house was empty. And I was just like, my entire life, I've never seen this house empty. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, this, this house is fucking huge. Like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I've been it is and so i do kind of wonder about that i mean the houses in Detroit are, are kind of large and then it gets cold and you have to like pay more to heat it and is there really a trade-off from from <laughs> from working from home yeah um uh yeah I, that's a good that's a good question i know i remember my sister lived in dearborn for a while and she lived in inkster and then dearborn and uh i remember just coming out to from california being like wait there's a whole floor underneath this floor a basement floor yeah and there's an attic like we don't need california we don't have that <laughs> the owner i get the less i need a basement i'm just like i'm really i'm i'm definitely in the i don't know if there's a trend for it yet but like the minimalist millennial like the <laughs> the older i get I'm like, I don't need this. I want to throw everything away. <laughs> I know less storage space means less less yeah. stuff to accumulate. It's like Marie Kondo, everything. Can I ask you before we go, can I ask you a couple of questions from listeners? Oh yeah, of course. Oh my gosh. Okay, cool. Yeah. I asked people, I told people I was talking to you. Yeah. I'm excited. But before we lob questions at our guest, we're gonna toss some money at a good cause. And I asked Aaron and he said, I like to donate to Detroit Justice Center whenever I can. And it's a nonprofit that he really trusts. They're a nonprofit law firm working alongside communities. And you can find out more about them at DetroitJustice.org. So thanks to sponsors of the show for making that donation possible. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allies love you. 
Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. That's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay. Let's get to them. Your Detroit questions. Okay. Oh my gosh. Lizzie Carr wants to know, what's the weirdest or most unhinged fun fact you know about Detroit? Um, the weirdest or most unhinged fun fact. 
there's a historic neighborhood called Black Bottom. It is so named because the soil, it was a historically black neighborhood, yes, but it's not called that because black people live there. It's because the soil was so rich and dark, it was called Black Bottom. But you cannot type Black Bottom on a government-owned computer in Detroit because it thinks you're looking for oh. porn. <laughs> oh my God. So as, as, as Detroit's chief storyteller, there, was, there will be times where I had to describe the history of Lafayette Park and say like it was, a, or talk about like Paradise Valley and talk about like Black Bottom. And I would want to Google it just to make sure I was getting certain details right. And I always get this like angry, like all red caps, like you can't look at this. Oh my God. And, I, and at first I was like, why can't I look at it? I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> Black Bottom. <laughs> and for more on Googling Black Bottom, you can see the novel Boys Come First, which is linked in the show notes. Oh, speaking of, uh, Sarah Ackery had a great question. What's your favorite representation of Detroit and its story in the media? Mm, I like how like every Black fictional thing has like a character from Detroit. So I was watching A Different World reruns <gasps> and Ron Johnson. And what's wrong with him? I don't know, this is a first. Ron Johnson is speechless. Keep up the good work, Cam. It's from mm-hmm. Detroit. And then, like, randomly, like, one of the side characters had on a, a Old English D hat. I think about, like, <laughs> school days and Big Brother Almighty. Um, he has a famous To Me line where he's like, I am, I am from, from Detroit, Detroit Motown. So, so you, you can, can watch to see your mom. <laughs> and it's just like, he's kind of like one of the worst characters in the movie. Oh, but, no. like, but he just has this like, his attitude is very, and, and John Carlo Esposito plays the hell out of that role. Um, <laughs> and Martin, of course. Like a tweet went viral of the outside of Garden Court, which is the real name of the apartments. But they showed the exterior of Garden Court apartments over on Jefferson and Mount Elliott on every episode of Martin's. And so that is recognizable to an entire population, right? Mm-hmm. There are real people that live there. My best friend's mom, shout out to Brandon and, and his mom, Gail, she lives in that building. And so I texted him the tweet and the tweet asked, if you if you know who lives here, uh, you get a gold star or something like that. And I was like, do you know who lives here, Brandon? <laughs> <laughs> not, not Martin and Gina, yeah. your mom. Your mom. Here. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, a lot of black things have Detroit representation somehow. Mm-hmm. And people who are from Detroit, do they say Detroit or do they say Detroit? I am a Detroit, like a... a Second the, syllable? Yeah. Okay. The older I get, like, Detroit, you know, it's I let it slide, but I'm a Detroit. I'm okay. A, I'm a, uh. <laughs> so, I lived in Los Feliz for a long time, and Los Feliz versus Los Feliz was like oh, a very common. <laughs> <laughs> and someone recently, I was born in San Francisco. Someone recently called it Frisco to my face, and I let it slide. But I was like, don't, don't made, let it happen again. So I made the fatal New York error of calling it Houston and not Houston. Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> when I first got here, <laughs> I think they were going to throw me in the Hudson River. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. If you've always wondered this, it's because Houston, Texas is named after one dude, a general, while Houston Street in New York is named after some Southern founding father, William Houston, who seemed kind of like a jerk and a creep. But Houston Street is also a person, a professional baseball player who is not from Houston or New York, but from Austin. But all of this comes down to the fact that in New York, south of Houston should really be pronounced Sowhow. So correct anyone you want at any time. But another fun Detroit fact is that the international airport is technically in the city of Romulus. So when you're there, you're a Romulan. It's pronounced Romulan. 
Okay, Pepita and Valerie Horzel wanted to know something about salt mines under Detroit. I have never been to the salt mines under Detroit, but they do exist. It's either the world's largest or the country's largest. I'm not sure. Okay, so the world's largest salt mine, if you must know, is in Ontario, Canada. But the Detroit salt mines, nothing to sneeze at. A thousand feet deep into the center of the earth, as deep as the Chrysler building is tall. And they cover 1,400 acres, 100 miles of underground roads and tunnels. What do they do with all that salt? They throw it on the roads when they get icy. But they used to eat a lot of it too. There's a very expansive network of salt mines underneath the city uh, on the southwest side. And they are salt mines. Like people just go and, I mean, you can't go and get salt, yeah. but like there, there are workers that maintain and do this sort of thing. It's one of those things that like is always on like Detroit trivia or something like that. Mm-hmm. Did you know? I know very few people or if anyone who's actually done that. I didn't even know about it until right now. Um, Sydney S., Sonia Bird, Pepita, Ethan Patone wanted to know a little bit about Belle Isle. Sonia Bird specifically wanted to know what's up with the incredibly fast and dangerous slide at Belle Isle. Oh my gosh. I heard yes, it's closing. <laughs> is it true? No, it's not. It should not be closing. Oh, oh my. So Belle Isle is a historic island park. It is sacred ground to all Detroiters. A fun fact, uh, this is going deep, deep in my trivia knowledge, but Diana Ross acknowledged in her autobiography how important Belle Isle was to her as a child growing up. And much later when she did that famous concert in Central Park, which by the way, Central Park in New York and Belle Isle in Detroit have the same landscape architect. So Diana Ross did that famous concert and they named a section of Central Park after Diana Ross and she noted she specifically wanted that to connect Central Park with Belle Isle because she was like, this outdoor space is so important to us. Belle Isle is an outdoor space. It has a arboretum uh, or what what is that? Uh, Observatory. Observatory. Um, It used to have a zoo. Um, It does have an aquarium, trails, hiking, a beach, and yes, the casino where everybody does like church picnics and graduations and stuff like that and the fountains and back in the day it's still kind of to this day but like you would cruise around the aisle in like tricked out classic cars and stuff like that and there's so many videos and every rapper that came up in the 90s and 2000s was a shout out Bell Isle to Seven Mile <laughs> but yes the infamous giant slide so first of all there are giant slides in many places around the country they are typically a, sl- a slide with multiple humps it raises I'm not sure how many stories but not that high. We begin with the attraction that has turned into a viral sensation. Belle Isle's giant slide reopens amid somehow worldwide attention. 40 feet. It's 40 feet high. That's a slide as tall as a four-story building. And it's steel kind of covered with like a molded plastic, right? Mm -hmm. And so you get on a burlap uh, back in the day, and and there's a big debate about this. Um, (laughs) Back in the day, the giant slide on Belle Isle used to be yellow. And as we found out recently, it was painted with this special thing to reduce the friction and (gasps) keep people from going all going all like and they had to like wax it a certain way and all that so what you do is you know you pay your little you know 50 cent fare or whatever at least that's what it used to be get on a burlap sack sit on the burlap sack and just ride down the slide and go up and down up and down it's like a very like low stakes roller coaster right so mm-hmm. and it's just a very much a childhood like rite of passage uh-huh. i don't even remember the first time i went on Belle Isle. i just know i've been on it several times because it's just what we do very recently so 
first of all, a couple of years ago, it, the slide went from yellow to like a tan, and now it's like a pure silver, and it looks like just metal, right? Apparently, they over waxed it, <laughs> oh, and no. like you know, they just like put like just like coats of turtle wax on it, and they reopened it. Uh, all of a sudden, like people are just like speeding down the slide <gasps> and going airborne and and whatnot. Oh, And all of us, like anyone who has ridden the original Giant Slide up until like up until this year, knows that's not how it's supposed to be. Oh man! And so they had to, and so like all these engineers had to like figure out what was going on. Like, why are people doing this? And it was literally the most hilarious thing I I had ever seen. But at the same time, I'm just like, people are gawking at Detroit again. Yeah. People are just like, why are people going on this death slide? And I'm like, it's not a death slide. It's not supposed to be like that. So they had to like, you know, take a couple of coats of wax off or whatever. <laughs> and then they even did a demonstration of how to do it. And it's just like, you don't demonstrate how to do it. You just do it. Like, you just slide down. Yeah. Hey, Onino, that camera rolling? It is the moment you've all been waiting for. In just a few hours, the giant Belle Isle slide is going to be reopening. Of course, the reopening comes after last week's reopening got attention from around the entire world of the viral video of everyone bouncing around. It was not a smooth start. On the giant slide. Come on, man. Y'all ready? Nigga. Hey, you can break your back on the giant slide. You can even break your neck on the giant slide. You can even bump your head on the giant slide. Watch your hands and your legs on the giant slide. It's like jumping off a roof on the giant slide. Man, you can lose a tooth on the giant slide. I'm going to Detroit in a couple weeks, and I'm like, oh, I don't want him to fix it. I want to go down it. I want to. I want to sustain some kind of, you know, like bruising. M. Chris Curious, Natalie Jones, Jeffrey Nix all want to know, why is the pizza rectangular? It goes back to the pans that were... So the square pizza, rectangular pizza, is cooked in a rectangular pan, right? Buddy's Pizza and Shields and some of those other pizzerias of the time, everything is connected to the auto industry. industry. Ah. So many things are connected. So the pans were used to originally like shuffle the parts around for the cars and so the plants, the auto plants will like discard these plants. And so the pizza makers would be like, oh, here's some good metal, right? So <laughs> let's repurpose this. Good example of upcycling, right? Yeah. So they would take these square pans that were originally used to haul car parts and, and, and widgets and gizmos and things like that, clean them up, grease them, and line the pans with the dough, and it would get crispy around the edges yeah. and bake in the middle. And that's why. Huh. Another famous thing that is tied to the auto industry, just real quick, uh, the Coney dog. Uh, I was going to ask, why yeah. is it a Coney dog? Why do yeah. they have Coney Islands yeah. when it's not Coney why? Island? And, and like, you know, here in New York, it's, it's two different conversations, right? I'm <laughs> like, Coney Island is a place. And I'm like, but Coney Island in Detroit is also a place, but there are multiple Coney Islands. <laughs> um, and so, okay, so Coney, on the surface, it looks like a chili dog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, except that Albanian immigrants were using the um, cheapest parts of the cow, like the hearts and some of the other discarded meats. I don't want to know. Chopping them up, making them into a fine sauce, and putting them in a bun on top of a hot dog. And uh, they would sell them to auto workers on their breaks. Uh, back when auto workers were not getting paid a whole lot, and before we came up with like the $5 a day and, and, and unions and stuff like that, um, you would pay like, you know, 
don't know, 10 cents or mm. however much. Because again, the meat was cheap. So you didn't have to charge a whole lot for it. And so it became popular with the auto workers and that's how it started. So um, in maintaining those recipes over the years and, and keeping it cheap um, is how we have the Coney dog. Ha, I never knew that. Yes. Uh, last two questions I always ask. What's the hardest thing about being a Detroit storyteller or a champion of Detroit? What's something that is the toughest for you mm-hmm. about Detroit? And then I'll ask you your favorite, of course. <laughs> um, let's start with the toughest thing for me about Detroit is... I see the conversation growing around like people feeling like they have to leave Detroit to kind of pursue, especially the artists and creatives and whatnot. I feel like in recent years, there's been a little bit of a struggle to support creatives. And so you do have people who go to like Sweden or New York or, or all these different places to create their art and feel more and more distant from their hometown. They still represent Detroit everywhere they go, but they there's that wishing and needing to create where they come from as opposed to like, you know, you can be a homegrown artist in like San Francisco or whatever, or, or here in New York. So that's probably the toughest thing, I think, especially for me as a writer. I, I have longed for a literary scene uh, in the city. I think it's just now starting to coalesce, but I've seen a lot of false starts over the years. And here in New York, you know, I can throw a rock outside of my brownstone and hit, you know, there's a National Book Award winner on this block. (laughs) So that's one of the toughest parts. I think one of the harder parts of being a chief storyteller is always sounding like you are PR. Like, Mm -hmm. I find myself kind of that push and pull in terms of, like, I inherently know, and everyone from Detroit inherently knows that there is good in the city. But you cannot ignore what we perceive to be negative, which is poverty, which is the schools have a long way to go. Crime is still very much a persistent issue right now. The big issue right now is like, how do we solve crime? Do we install all this surveillance or not? Do people want surveillance? Do people not want surveillance? Every time I tell somebody like, oh, you know, the DIA is one of the world's greatest museums and you can go right down to Chartreuse and get a great meal and then maybe walk over uh, or, you know, take an Uber over to Keesling and then go dance the night away at UFO Factory, which is what I did last time I was there. Shout out <laughs> a blueprint for that amazing party shout out to mm-hmm. all those folks but then someone's always going to be like but what about a crime can i walk around this street late at night mm, you can't so <laughs> so that's always going to be the hard part is like i always tell people to take the good with the bad but more and more the longer i live out here in new york the more i feel like oh man oh man there's always going to be that but mm-hmm. and what about the thing that is just in your heart forever about Detroit? What do you love so much about the city? Who? Um, I love that the city forges hustlers. Mm-hmm. We, and I don't want to say gritty. I don't want to say never say die or anything like that. But I think there's that combination of like I was talking about earlier, that like black intelligence and black innovation. And it's not just limited to black people. I mean, the immigrant determination in Detroit, you know, Albanians creating this Coney empire mm-hmm. off of the backs of automotive workers, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the city forces you to kind of make a way. I think it's because we are kind of the butt of everyone's jokes. The odds are consistently against us, but we still know who we are. 
the it doesn't matter how hard times get we'll put the fur on we'll put the buffs on uh buffs are cartier sunglasses (laughs) (laughs) uh we will drive the nicest cars we have to find a way to get those furs we have to find a way to get the buffs right um we i i love that the city has instilled a sense of determination and a fearlessness and and audacity unlimited audacity for me to to go conquer a place like New York for other folks, you know, for Barry Gordy to conquer the music industry, for Diana Ross to, I love Diana Ross, I am a gay man, right? But, <laughs> but for Diana Ross to like be the the diva of her time and literally start from nothing, started the Rooster Projects, now she is the one, she is what Beyonce aspires to be. Yeah, I said mm-hmm. it. So I, 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 that is ever present in every Detroiter, everywhere we go. It is why like, we recognize each other in crowds. If I'm wearing my old English D hat and somebody recognizes, we immediately ask, like, where did you go to high school? (laughs) What corner did you come up on? I love that. I love that for us. Yay, Detroit. So ask storytellers the history of their favorite things and then just sit down and listen. And again, come back March 21st for the follow-up episode on domicology, what happens when a house is abandoned scientifically and sociologically, but follow Aaron Foley on social media, all linked in the show notes. Also linked his book, Boys Come First, which you can buy and enjoy as I have. So excited for that to be a show also. Uh, we also link Detroit Justice and so many other things on my site at alleyward.com slash ologies slash Detroitology. That's linked in the show notes. Thank you again, Aaron Foley. This was absolutely worth waiting five years for. And I'm Allie Ward with one L on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Ologies on both. We also have short kid safe episodes. They're called Smologies. They're available in this feed or at AllieWard.com slash Smologies. That's linked in the show notes too. Thank you, Zeke Rodriguez-Thomas and Mercedes Maitland for working on Smologies. Aaron Talbert, Admin Zeology's podcast Facebook group with assists from Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis. Emily White of The Wordery makes our professional transcripts. And those are linked for free on my website and in the show notes. Susan Hale handles merch and so much more. Noelle Dilworth does our scheduling. Kelly R. Dwyer handles the website and can make yours. Nick Thorburn wrote and performed the theme music in Jarrett Sleeper, a.k.a. Hunk of the Month. And the magical Mercedes Maitland edited the show. And if you stick around until the end... I burden you with a secret of my life. And one memory I, I'm always going to have of Detroit, such a sweet one, It's was flying there in the summer of 1999. Anyone who was alive in Detroit this time remembers this summer. I was with my sister Celeste to visit our sister Janelle who lived in Detroit. And Celeste and I heard the pilot of our plane walk by us in the airport mentioning that we would be traveling through, and I quote, one hellacious thunderstorm. But we landed safely in Detroit to see trees ripped out like weeds everywhere. The city was like, give me a minute. I have been through something. And so there was no power. So we hung out in my sister's VW van a lot and outside in parks where there were fireflies twinkling around. And at one point we went to get a soda from the local liquor store. And as we bought it, the girl working there apologized that it wasn't cold saying, I'm sorry, we only have hot pop. And that sentence has replayed in my head so many hundreds of times. And whoever she was, I hope she's drinking a cold one. Okay, Detroit, you stay cool. You've always been cool. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, and
Thank you, Detroit. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.